Welcome. If you are visiting with us and I've not had the chance of meeting you, my name is John Sarver. I'm one of the pastors here. We'll be back in the book of John. If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 8. That can be found on page 950 of your pew Bibles. And if you don't own a good Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. That's John 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, 950 in the pew Bibles. If you were here this week, in Memphis, you know, we were hit with a series of storms, ice storms from, I don't know, late Monday to early Thursday. If you've been in Memphis for some time, you know, one thing's for certain, where there's ice, there are power outages. Now, this wasn't like the great storm of 2022 that left like half of our members living with the other half of our members for a week. Never forget the Matskis and their kids were with us for seven or eight straight days. This wasn't that, but it was a storm nonetheless. Where there's ice in Memphis, there are power outages. Early Thursday morning, our power was flickering on and off, on and off. It would go off for a minute. It would come back on. This is happening as I was in my room trying to read. Now to state what's quite obvious, you can't read without light. You can't really do much of anything without light. You might think back to the last time you found yourself in complete darkness. One of our most natural impulses in the dark is to try to find light. So you get home late, or you wake up in the middle of the night, or you jump in your car, you look to turn the lights on. These days, we even, at our house, we, we have these things automated. <laughs> like, we wake up, the lights turn on. We get home, the lights turn on. We don't like being in the dark. We crave the light. It's because in the darkness, we're confronted with what's unknown. You might think you know what's there. You don't really until the lights are on. To state what's obvious, again, light reveals what's there. Light doesn't create what's there, it reveals it. That little Lego that your child has left for your foot is waiting. Whether the lights are on or off, the potholes that plague Potler, they're there in the darkness, whether you're using your lights or not. The light simply reveals reality so that we can respond accordingly. The light reveals what it shines on. It also reveals its source. Power comes back on. You see your lamp. You see your room. You're outside at sunrise. You see the sun rising. You also see everything that it's touching. Light reveals reality. There are a handful, a few verses in the book of John that I think capture what the entire book is about. You get this verse, you get the book. John gives us one of those in his prologue, John 1.18. John writes, No one... Think about this. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side or in his bosom, he has revealed him. No one has ever seen God. This is even a kind of darkness. Sight is the highest possible knowledge we can have. We were made to see God, to know him, to be in union with him. And John says it hasn't happened. Not to that level. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, that God dwells in unapproachable light, that no one can or has seen him. God is so different from us, so transcendent from us, we couldn't hope to lift our eyes to him, even if we wanted to. That's, that's kind of problem one. No one can see God. Problem two, nobody wants to see God. John tells us in his prologue, verses 4 and 5, that whatever light of knowledge God has given us, we've darkened it. It hardly remains. We've so shut ourselves off from God and whatever knowledge of him remains, it's deformed. It becomes idolatry. So we have this dual problem. God is inaccessibly transcendent, and we're blind. We're so blind that John 1.10, we don't recognize God. So God offers a solution, John 1, 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Why? Verse 18, the one and only son who is himself with God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. The son makes the unseen God seen in himself. To see his glory, John 1, 14, is to see the glory of the son from the father. To see the son is to see the father, he tells Thomas in 14 verse 7. This is really the book of John in a nutshell. Jesus has come from heaven to reveal God and the way to him. 
Jesus reveals God on the way to him because he is God and he is the way to God. It's as though the power, the lights were out on all of mankind. We were unable and unwilling to look to God. We were lost in the darkest of night and God himself came to us in Christ, revealing himself and his source that we might return with him. Jesus has come to reveal God and the way to him. Keep that in mind as we read our text. John chapter 8, verse 12, if you're able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. John chapter 8, beginning verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards, I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said to them again, I'm going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he told them, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you, they questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left my side because I always do what pleases him. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning, again, kind of captures the book of John. Jesus reveals God and the way to God to a people who know neither. Jesus reveals God and the way to God to a people who know neither. One more time, Jesus reveals God and the way to God to a people who know neither. And this revelation takes place, we'll see in the text, as the Son speaks about himself, as the Father speaks about the Son, and as the cross speaks about the Son. So Jesus comes as a light of the world to reveal God and the way to him, to those who don't know him. This revelation takes place as the Son speaks about himself, as the Father speaks about the Son, and as the cross speaks about the Son. First, the Son speaks about himself. This is really what all the Gospels are about. This is certainly what chapter 7 and 8 are about in the book of John. Who is Jesus really? Have you been tracking with the lame who stopped death, who's bidding people to come and drink his blood and eat his flesh? Who is Jesus really? Jesus is going to tell us. He speaks about himself accurately, with clarity. He's going to tell us what he's been telling them from the very beginning, that Jesus is the word become flesh. He is Israel's God and Messiah. He has come to reveal God and the way to him. Who is Jesus? 
This is the kind of question we ask in the darkness, and Jesus shouts back in the light. He speaks about himself. First, a little bit of context of where we're at. We find ourselves in Jerusalem still, I think, on the last day of the Festival of Booths or Tabernacles. Again, this festival was intended to help Israel praise God for his faithfulness in the past to the wilderness generation. God had protected and provided for his people, Israel, for 40 years as they traveled from slavery in Egypt to freedom in Canaan. And so for one week every year, Israel would descend on Jerusalem. They would live in tents. They would listen to music. They would sing. They would dance. They would hear scripture. It's like a big party for a week, okay? We're talking Jewish Palooza or Jewish city limits. It gives you a sense for the size and the energy, okay? Through tent dwelling and two rituals, two rituals, they were reenacting and experiencing God's miraculous provision for his people. The ceremonies, they looked back at what God had done and they looked forward to what God would do. Each sign, kind of like a sacrament, was about past provision and future promises. We saw the first one last time. It was a water ritual. Israel recalled the rock that was struck to bring forth water for the people. And yet Israel was still waiting. They're waiting for the Messiah to come and for God to pour out his spirit on his people and his land. It was in the midst of this ceremony that Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If you're tired, if you're thirsty, if you're longing for life and you have nothing to offer good, come and drink without cost. His invitation and the implications of it were unmistakable. What we're doing here, this ritual, it's histories about me. The God who provided in the desert is me. The rock who was and will be struck is me. The one who pours out the spirit on his people, that's me. Now Jesus said this already after the leaders have deemed him guilty. Already after they'd resolved to kill him. Already after they sent the temple guards to seize him. That's where we ended. Tension is high. Curiosity is high. We pick up after. We're still in Jerusalem. It's the last day of the festival. We have one more ritual left. It looked back. Now, again, as you think about the wilderness generation, there are really three miraculous um, provisions that God provided for Israel that stand out, though there are numerous. The first is manna from heaven. God provides food for his people as they're hungry. Jesus already in John chapter 6 told us that they ate that and they died. If you eat of me, you won't die. It's about Jesus. The second, of course, is water from the rock. Jesus tells us, actually, that's about me. If you drink from me, you'll have springs of life inside of you. And the third, the third miraculous act that really stands out and the second thing that they would gather to remember is that God led Israel through a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. We heard this in our scripture reading from Exodus 14. Again, they're coming, they're dwelling in tents, they're going to have what's a lighting ritual. The purpose is that for them to relive it. Even think about it as you were there. You were a former slave. You're making your way to a distant land you've, n you've never been to, you've only just heard about. You're doing so on foot. At this point, you're camping out by the sea. You're not in your own bed, and yet you feel a sense of rest. A bit of rest for the first time. You just saw the most remarkable signs as God by his outstretched arm delivered you from slavery. You feel in a range of emotions. Joy at your freedom, hope for the future, disbelief at the change of your circumstances, maybe even a little fear as you think about whether or not Pharaoh will really let you go. Now you can't see much, it's dark. Okay, not like city dark. I could read a book outside my house at night. It's desert dark. There may be some fires around the campsite, so you can see a little bit, but you mostly are relying on your sense of sound. You can hear some people who are still awake, maybe some children crying from exhaustion. You hear some of the elderly laughing. They cannot believe the situation that they found themselves in, being free. You hear the sea in the distance lapping. Now, at some point, the sound begins to change, you can recall the sound of two million people and their livestock walking. This is different. 
you begin to hear the thunder of horses, the clanging of wood and metal, not Hebrew, but Egyptian tongue in the distance, laughing in the camp turns to weeping. Israel understands that Egypt has come, they're pursuing her. There's hysteria in the camp. People are crying out to the Lord and shouting at Moses. It would have been better if you left us in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here to die? Now at this point, you feel like you've already seen it all. Then Moses lifts up his staff. The sea splits in two and you begin to walk through it. You begin to walk through it. Not just that, but the Lord himself descends in a pillar of fire. He's not guiding you. He's actually behind you. If you're walking, you're to be water, water, perhaps people behind you, God himself, and then Pharaoh and his armies. They can't get one inch closer than God allows. You emerge from the sea, having been baptized in God's mercies. Pharaoh and his army are swallowed in his wrath. And yet, this is not just a one-time act. Every day you travel, you see the pillar of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night, as God himself is leading you, guiding you, protecting you, taking you to his land of promise. There's a lighting ritual. It looks back to that. But it also looked forward. We heard a text in our other scripture reading from Isaiah chapter 9 about a light who would dawn on those living in the darkness. Isaiah 60 gives us an even fuller picture. You'll recognize this. We see something similar in the New Testament. This is Isaiah 60, beginning in verse 18. This promise for the future, what they're looking toward. Violence will never again be heard in your land. Devastation and destruction will be gone from your borders. You will call your walls salvation and your city gates praise. The sun will no longer be your light by day. And the brightness of the moon will not shine on you. The Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your splendor. Your sun will no longer set and your moon will not fade. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. And the days of your sorrow will be over. All of your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. They are the branch I have planted, the work of my hands so that I may be glorified. The least will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. I will accomplish it quickly in its time. And so every year you gather for this festival wondering if it's time. You're praying that the Lord would come quickly. When will violence no longer be heard in our city? When will our walls be called salvation and our gates praised? When will we actually possess the land? When will we be planted back in Eden? When will sin and death be a distant memory? When will God himself so dwell with us that we'll no longer need the sun? So you pack in with Israel into the temple courts. You're being reminded of the past. You're looking to the future. This is the scene. People, men in particular, are dancing with torches, okay? It's lit in more ways than one. The Levitical orchestra is playing music that you're singing to. They start playing Psalm 27. You and your friends are like, this is my favorite psalm. You join the chorus of Israel singing, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. For he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. My heart says this about you, seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. 
You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Because of my adversaries, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on your path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. The band cuts out like we do for the last verse. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. You're here packed in, singing, looking back, looking forward. There are four 75-foot massive menorahs. You see men climbing them with torches in their hands to light the lamps. Here you are confessing that God is your light. From the pillar of fire to the new heavens and the new earth, he is the everlasting light. You're asking that you might see him in his temple. You're asking him to show you the way and to lead you on the path. You're confessing that you're waiting for him. And at some point on this evening, Jesus stands up and cries out, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, Jesus is saying. The God who met Moses in the fiery bush is here. The one who led Israel through the wilderness is here. The everlasting light you're longing for is here. Look not to the holy of holies. I'm right here. Jesus confesses not to be simply a light, not one among many. He is the light of the world. God's Israel's God and their salvation. He is the means by which everything was spoken into existence. The one who gives and grounds all meaning and truth. The light of the world is here. But Jesus doesn't simply make a pronouncement about himself. He offers a promise. Right? Jesus reveals to save. He reveals both God and the way of salvation. He doesn't just come and say, I'm the light of the world. No, he says, anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. When we use light, it's often to discover or learn. Right, you hear a noise in the living room or your kid's room, you turn the light on, you want to see what's going on. Think something's wrong in the attic, you go up there with a flashlight. You use light to learn. Jesus didn't come here on a fact-finding mission. Like after 30 years, I can say with confidence, they are indeed sinful and lost. No, Jesus, the light of the world, descends into darkness without being overcome by it so that we might see him and just how lost we are. Here's the thing about light, it's indiscriminate. It just tells the truth. You know this, every morning you walk into the bathroom, you turn the light on. Light don't care. Shows you your bags, your pores, your pounds. It simply reveals what's true. Well, what happens when the light of the world descends into a world of darkness? He reveals not just himself, but our sickness. Implicit in Jesus' self-identification and his promise is a verdict against the world. The world is in darkness. You think yourselves part of Israel. You're with Pharaoh and his army. Blind, unable, and unwilling to look to God. This darkness in Scripture, it's a kind of willful ignorance. It's as though we've turned off the lights in our mind to the things of God so that we can do what we want, we think, in secret. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 1. He says that God's attributes, they're clear in creation. As a result, people are without excuse. And he says, verse 21, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling creatures. The remedy for our darkness, for our willful ignorance and rejection of God, it's not a class or a program, it's a person. The God of light plunges into the depths of darkness to lift us up with him. Calvin writes, for since we are all blind by nature, a remedy is offered by which we may be freed and rescued from darkness and made partakers of the true light. 
He gives us the gift of himself that we might see both us as we are and him as we need him. Jesus is offering an invitation to anyone, to anyone who dwells in the darkness and can recognize it. We'll see this in John chapter 9. Jesus has not come for those who can see. He's come for the blind, for those fumbling around in the stupor of their sins, for the lost and the darkened, for the dead and the dumb. Jesus is telling us to come and to see so that we can live. He offers us a remedy for the darkness that's foolproof because it's him. Look again at what he says. Anyone who follows me will never, they will never, not for a moment, walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Have you ever needed light, but your light source was unreliable? We just assume in our house that our extra bulbs, we got a whole box of batteries. Battery daddy, shout out if anyone knows it. We have iPhone chargers littered all throughout our house. Why? We expect our light sources to fail us. We assume we'll need to replace them. They help only for a little while. Jesus offers the most remarkable promise. If you're with him, you're never in the darkness. Not for a single moment. You may feel like you're in the darkness. The world around us is darkness. Brothers and sisters, the world around us is utter darkness. Our culture's depravity and agnosticism are on full display for all to see. Doctors slaughtering babies, therapists rewiring children, people shooting in libraries, those entrusted to protect, killing the innocent. The world around us is dark. But we are not in the darkness. Jesus' light does not flicker or fade. His power source does not run out. His strength never wanes. He is sufficient to guide us through this barren wilderness on our way home, and he will get us there. Pharaoh's armies get not when inch closer than he allows. Make no mistake, we continue to live in a world of darkness, a world that is sin-soaked, God-denying, man-oppressing. The promise is not to remove the darkness, not yet at least. The promise is that if we're with him, he'll guide us home. He leads us to an eternal city that knows not one shadow. God himself, the light of the world, has come to light the way for us on our way to heaven. It often feels like we're in the darkness. You may not know your next steps, but Jesus does. To be with him is to be in the light. The darkness may surround us, yes. We're at no threat of it coming in. We're with the one who overcame it. If you're with Jesus, you're in the light. You can't be in the darkness if you're following him. Here's the reality, brothers and sisters. The world wants you to believe that there's more life found fumbling around in darkness than following Jesus. Okay, Jesus reveals the truth. He reveals God as he really is, us as we are and as we can be. He reveals the way to himself He's giving us wisdom for life. The world is whispering at you to come back into the darkness. Every commercial, every influencer, every philosophy is competing with your mind and your heart, telling you, if you just had X, you would really live. Right? A better physique, more money, better politicians, a different job, less constraints. If you only had my wisdom, if you only had what I'm selling, you would really be alive. To go there is to walk back in the darkness. Jesus alone offers true and meaningful life, and it's experienced as we walk with him. He makes himself available to us. We're not at any risk of him outpacing us. He's come near to be with us. Jesus makes this announcement about himself. This time the Pharisees, they confront him directly, verse 13, they say, Jesus, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony isn't valid. Now, they're not flat out denying Jesus' claim, though we know that they don't believe it. They're saying, Jesus, this doesn't hold up in court. Like, your, your testimony isn't valid. Right now, this is he said, Pharaoh, she said. That'll get some of you on the way home. 
They're thinking like anybody can just walk in here and say, I am the light of the world. Like big whoop. If you've spent any time on Beale Street after a Grizzlies game, you've probably met someone who claims to be God or Messiah. They're saying, Jesus, your testimony is not valid. Jesus responds, verse 14. He says, actually, it is valid. Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. Jesus is saying that I actually can speak about myself in an authoritative way. I do so by divine right. I know where I've come from and where I'm going. When Jesus speaks, it's divine self-disclosure. Light doesn't lie. It doesn't discriminate. It reveals reality. It doesn't need us to agree with him for it to be true. So yes, what might be true of any other man is not true of Jesus. When he speaks about himself, he reveals himself as he is. Jesus reveals himself as he speaks about himself. Revelation also takes place as the Father speaks about the Son. We'll see the Father speaks about, really, with the Son. Now, Jesus knows what their issue is. They think he can't speak about himself in an authoritative way. They want him to furnish some kind of evidence, maybe a second witness. Now, don't miss this. Jesus doesn't have to do anything for them. The veracity of a statement does not depend upon any of them agreeing with him. True is true. He doesn't have to do anything they want. It would be his right as judge to open a gaping hole before their feet, leading them straight to an eternal doom for their crimes against God and the rejection of him. But he doesn't. Why? Verse 15 and 16. As we saw in John 3, 17, Jesus did not come to judge but to save Jesus, in his mercy, in his kindness, is going to acquiesce to these arrogant men as they accuse him. Why? He wants to help them understand and believe, lest they die in their sin. So verse 17, Jesus acknowledges what they want. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. Verse 18, Jesus calls the second witness they're asking for. It's a bombshell of a witness, okay? If you're there in court, you're gasping. You want a second witness, your honor? I call to the stand, God. Verse 18, I'm the one who testifies about myself, witness one, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Pregnant pause, you're in the courtroom, you're looking back at the door. You're waiting for someone to take the stand. Notice the Father doesn't rend the heavens and shout from on high, he's with me. He does something similar with Peter, right? Peter, stop talking. Listen to my son. The Father testifies to the son, but how? Jesus calls the Father to the stand knowing that he's already testified. Where? in the words and the actions of Christ. Everything Jesus does reveals God. Look down at verse 26. We see the Father and Son speaking together. The one who sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. Look down at the second half of verse 28. I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. Jesus only says what he's heard from the Father. He only teaches what he's learned from the Father. If you want to know what the Father says or has to say, listen to me. You'll recall Jesus said something very similar in John chapter 5. This is what, this is really where his troubles with the religious leaders began. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. He justifies himself. This is John 5 verse 17 because he says, oh, the Father is still working, and I am working also. And then he explains what he means in verse 19. He says, The Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. When does the Father speak? Every time the Son speaks. 
because Jesus only says what he's received from him. When does the Father act? Every time the Son acts, because he only does what he sees. This again presses us deeply into the depths of God. What is the Father's testimony? What is his witness? His word, it's his divine Son. The Father eternally speaks forth the word. He eternally begets the Son such that he's as perfect self-understanding and self-expression. The Son reveals the Father because the Son is the same God. What that means is that everything the Father does, the Son does. Everything the Father says, the Son says. Everything the Father wills, the Son wills. Everything the Father knows, the Son knows. If you're ever reading a gospel and you're wondering, like, I wonder what the Father would have done in this scenario. Like if the Father was there, John chapter 2, the wine runs out. Maybe he's just a little more high strung and he doesn't produce more wine. What would the father have done with the woman at the well in John 4? Maybe he'd rebuke her for her sin. What would the father have done with the paralytic? Would he have walked by? What would the father have done with the hungry multitude? Would he agree with the disciples, send them away? What would he have done with religious leaders? If you're wondering what the father would have done, look to Jesus. They don't have different opinions or inclinations or power. Every single thing that Jesus does declares, I am my Father's Son. And in everything the Son does, the Father declares, this is my Son. The Son reveals the Father in all that he does because all that he is, he receives from the Father. And all that the Father is, he gives to the Son. To see Jesus is to see the Father. We get just a kind of faintest analogy in human sonship. Our sons often, they look a lot like us, they dress like us, they talk like us, they adopt our mannerisms. Sometimes you'll meet a father and son and you immediately make the connection, like, oh, you look just like your dad or you sound just like your son. This is a faint analogy. The divine son is not a shadow of the father. He's his perfect image, Colossians 1.15. He is the exact expression or imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. He is his word. When Jesus reveals himself, he reveals the Father. When the Son speaks of himself, he speaks of the Father. In sending the Son, the Father reveals himself. When Jesus testifies about himself, he, the Father testifies with him because he only says as he's received. We have a Honda Odyssey. Shout out to Parent Life. Don't sleep on the minivans. We got this little mirror that comes down. It's different from your rear view. Okay, you guys might know this. And it lets you just see the kids in the back. You don't want to turn to them while you're driving, you know. Safety is only one of the reasons. I, I use it all the time. Just as I really use it, I love this thing. I put it down. I can, see, I can see them without looking directly at them, okay? Looking at Jesus, it's like looking at the Father in a mirror. You're not looking directly at him. You can't. You can't even look directly at Jesus according to his divinity. He dwells in unapproachable light. And so God in his mercy sent the son to become flesh so that we might look upon him. God in his kindness reveals himself to us in his son who took on flesh. By looking in the mirror, you see him. Such that again, Jesus can tell Thomas in chapter 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. John can write in his prologue, no one has seen the Father, and yet the Son reveals him, such that Jesus tells the Pharisees here in verse 19, if you don't know me, you don't know him. It's not just that Jesus is the only way to the Father, that's true. It's not just that you can't have the Father without the Son, that's true. It's that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one God. Jesus is, as the church has always confessed, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. If you don't like the God in the mirror, you won't like him anywhere. If you don't know the Son and love the Son that you read in the Gospels, you do not know or love God, period. And more positively, if you want to know God, if you want to know your creator and redeemer, 
if you want to know the source of all goodness and joy, if you want to be connected to life itself, the one by whom and for whom you were made, God has made a way. Look to Jesus, your God and your brother. The one whom we don't deserve to look at for a second has come down and become one of us that we might be with him forever. It's a staggering gift. God's revelation of himself in Christ is not deserved. It's not a given. It's a gift. Divine revelation of this kind of clarity is an act of kindness. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to be with God, then be with Jesus in the light. Jesus, of course, has come not just to reveal himself, but to invite us to himself. He reveals for the purpose of salvation. Jesus is going to take us to one more place of revelation, the cross. The cross speaks about the Son. The cross shouts about what our God is like and how we get to him. Now, Jesus is having this interaction with the Pharisees or the Jews. They're not, they're not really grasping what he's putting down. You know, he told them in chapter 7, I'm going to go, I'm leaving somewhere you can't come. They say, you're going to the Greeks. He says, here, you know, my father testifies about me. They're like, Joseph is where? Jesus begins to change gears a little bit, and he's going to warn them. He's warning them with the hopes of leading them to salvation. Verse 21, he said to them again, I'm going away. You will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. This is basically a repeat of what we saw in chapter 7. Jesus is stressing the urgency of his invitation. If you reject me as the Messiah and you keep looking for the Messiah, you won't find him because I'll be in heaven. You'll die in your sin. The gulf between us, light and darkness, above and below, will be forever fixed. Brothers and sisters, he wants us to go with him. He came down to lift us up. Not to judge, but to save. He came to do what no ladder of performance, what no tower of man-made religion could do. He speaks a harsher word now in hopes of leading them to himself. Jesus is telling them, do not die in your sins. Do not cut yourself off from heaven's only light and ladder. So he warns them. Verse 822, we see confusion. They say, he won't really, he won't kill himself, will he? They think he's lost it. Chapter 7, this guy's demon-possessed. Now he's suicidal. They're wondering, is he talking about killing himself? The irony, of course, is they are going to kill him. The irony, of course, is though he does not kill himself, he willingly lays himself down. No one could take his life unless he gave it. He does this so that we can go where he comes from and where he returns to. They don't get it, so he persists in warning. Verse 23, you're from below. He told them, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Warning again in 24, therefore I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, even in this warning, there's an invitation Jesus is bidding them to come and believe so that they do not die in their sins. He is their own. They say, who are you? Verse 25, Jesus says, what I've been telling you from the beginning. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has not been cryptic. Very beginning. If you just look at the book of John, excluding the prologue, this is what we've heard about Jesus so far. He's the Lamb of the world, 129. He is the Messiah, 141. He's heaven's ladder, 151. He's the spirit baptized baptizer, 133. He's the temple, 221. He's the bridegroom, 329. He's the savior of the world, 441. He's the son of God, 525. He's the bread of life, 635. He's the light of the world, 812. He's the son of man we're about to see. Jesus has been speaking with clarity and accuracy from the beginning about himself. Light reveals reality. It's not that he's being confusing. It's that they are blind. Verse 27 tells us they don't get it. So Jesus is going to put forth one last sign. It will definitively demonstrate who he is. It's a sign that no one one day will be able to deny. Verse 28, so Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. 
When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Jesus calls himself Son of Man. That just means Son of a human, human Son. It becomes a messianic title in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel there, I'd encourage you to read it later. He's giving us, given a staggering vision of heaven. He sees God, beginning in verse 9, he's enthroned on a throne of fire. There's a river of fire flowing out from him. There are thousands upon thousands attending to him and serving him. That's what you expect to see in heaven. God being served by angels. And then Daniel sees something he was not expecting to see. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, and suddenly, one like a son of man, that is one like a human, was coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days. And he was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Daniel sees someone in heaven who looks like a human but acts like God. It's the Messiah that they're waiting for. This is their expectation to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. To see the Son of Man on the clouds being given a kingdom, a dominion, a rule without end. And Jesus is saying, you will know that I am he, Israel's God and Messiah, when you look up and you see me in the clouds. Though not as though you expect, it's when you hang me there. It's there on the cross, in the Son's great act of obedience, that he's crowned King of the Jews. It's there on the cross that he's seated upon his throne. It's there from his side that a well flows for the forgiveness of our sins. It's there as his light is put out that we can finally see. The cross reveals our God and the way to him. Behold your creator who became that which he made for you. Behold your judge and his fury against sin. Sentenced on our behalf. Behold your king crushed for us who were once his enemies. Behold your priest who bleeds for our sins. Behold your prophet hanging in silence. Behold the God who loves you. Brothers and sisters, he doesn't love you because of anything you've done. He doesn't even love you because of the cross. The cross is there because he loves you. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. The cross, unlike anything else, tells us about our gods and the lengths to which he would go to save us from our sin. This is the beauty of the gospel. That though we had so shut ourselves off from God, that God himself came down to be one of us to live perfectly on our behalf, to be crushed in our stead that we might be forgiven and free. If you're with us this morning, you're not a Christian. This is the one thing we would have you hear this morning. Jesus Christ from heaven cries out to you that he is the light of the world. If you go to him, you will never be in darkness. Instead, you'll have life. We would encourage you to stick around afterwards and talk to any of our members. We love talking about Jesus. We all, too, were once blind. And not because of any merit of us, but because God's mercy. He opened our eyes to see the cross. The cross speaks definitively about Christ, and before it, we will all one day bow Look at verse 28 again. Jesus says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then, then you will know that I am He. No doubt some who are hearing Him now, some who are plotting against His demise, they would come to trust in Him who they killed. And guess what? His blood was sufficient even for them. Is there, is there any doubt that we can have? He holds up forgiveness even to those who would kill Him. 
But of course, not everyone who hears Jesus is going to come to trust in him. What does Jesus mean when he says they will see the Son of Man on the cross and know that he is he? I think Jesus is saying that the cross becomes the focal point of revelation. For us who believe it was there on the cross where we first saw the light, it's revelation that leads to salvation. This is what we deserved and this is what God assumed. For those who reject the cross, it stands in judgment over them. It's revelation that leads to condemnation. Those who reject Jesus will die in their sin and awaken to see the lamb who was slain ruling as king of heaven. The cross will stand in judgment over all those who rejected it. On this side of death, the cross proclaims salvation and is an invitation. If you're thirsty, come and drink from his side. If you're hungry, come and feast on his flesh. If you're in the dark, come to his light. If you're guilty, Come and find forgiveness of sins in him. He cries out to you today, come. On the other side of death, sinners will look upon the one they rejected and hear him reject them. Brothers and sisters, we were once blind. God in his kindness, in his mercy, has brought us into the light of Jesus Christ. He sets us ablaze like little lamps in the world. We should make it our aim to follow Jesus, to listen to him, and to beckon others to come into the light with us. Our message is amazing. From incarnation to the cross and beyond, it is remarkable. Augustine puts it this way, the creator of man agreed to be a man. He was made into what he had made so that what he had made would not perish. What could possibly be added to such mercy? He also had to be rejected by human beings. Too little to be rejected, he had to be disgraced as well. Too little to be disgraced, he also had to be killed. Even this was too little. It had to be by death on a cross. The cross reveals a God unlike any other. Though we were blind and we hated him and were cut off from him and wanted his worst, we thought with the cross we would send him to hell. In his mercy, he holds up forgiveness to us and all those who would simply come. May we make it our aim to listen to him as he speaks clearly about himself, to follow him in the light and to invite others to come with us as he leads us home. Let's pray.